And here we go. Hello, guys, and welcome to the Uncensored Critic. My name is Oliver Gower. Welcome back to the podcast. So today I'm thrilled to be joined here by Simon Furness. Uh, Simon is an actor and director who's worked across countless areas in London. He's worked at the Actors Temple, GSA, the Mind Centre London, London School of Musical Theatre and the Actors Guild. And just to name a few of his uh, many credits, he's played Horatio in Hamlet, uh, Colonel Redfern in Look Back in Anger, and Caesar and Anthony and Cleopatra, and Ernest Worthing in Oscar Wilde's The Importance of Being Earnest. And that's just a few of his credits. And I'm sure, I mean, just, just reading that straight away, I, just, I know that today I want to talk to you about Chekhov, but I suppose just a quick note, sort of like an appetizer to the conversation really, because we're very different. Um, what was it like performing um, Oscar Wilde? Oh, well, um, you know, it, it was marvellous. I mean, when you get a great play and a great script, it does something to you in a way. It kind of carries you. You, you know, you, you mm. don't feel you're having to work in quite the same way as with a script that's possibly not at that level. I mean, we're talking about the kind of highest form of comedy here, really, mm. you know, where people are making jokes and they deliberately know they're being funny and they're meant to be funny. Uh, and, and that's quite difficult to do technically. But I was lucky to tour that in Germany, where then, and maybe it probably has now, there's a very high level of, of spoken English. And so this was a play that <laughs> they kind of knew anyway, you know, in a sense. I mean, I think it was quite familiar to them. So, yeah, it was, it was quite an interesting experience to have an audience, you know, on your side and willing to kind of take part in it humorously. Um, uh, who were at the same time not English, you know, yeah. whom English was a second language. So, um, yeah, I loved it. And also playing in playing in wonderful theatres in Germany, they have a very different system over there. I mean, every town city has its own subsidised theatre, very unlike our own situation. You know. Yeah, actually, I suppose that leads into a very nice everybody, which is, um, I, I suppose, really on a personal level for yourself. How have you found just the last 13 months without just no theatres. Well, some theatres have been back, like the bridge was mm. open for a little bit. Um, yeah. uh, the National was open for a little bit, both times, albeit very briefly. Sure. But uh, everything else seemed to still stay in lockdown, like the Old Vic didn't open up. You know, mm -hmm. most theatres in town have still been closed since last March. I mean, I mean how, how, what's your take on it? How have you found just a year without the theatres? Uh, well, I mean, I've, I, I found it equally depressing <laughs> thrilling <laughs> depressing and then you know uh, in the way that all human beings have to adapt to 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 whatever's thrown them really or not you know and i don't do that as well or any better than anybody else i i feel very deeply um, um about it though because I think the theatre sector has taken a lot longer to get going, if in fact we can say what's happening now is getting going, yeah. than film and TV. And, um, yeah. you know, the, the, the British uh, are lauded abroad for, for uh, their uh, um, excellence in this art form. And yet the reality is it's, it's stumbling and, and floundering. And, you know, I, I don't think people are perhaps the consumer of it is quite aware of what goes into making a piece of theatre and maintaining the buildings that can house it and create it. Um, I suppose by the same token, people have started to become, even before lockdown, much more creative in the kind of spaces that they use. 
Um, but for my own work, I've, I, I, as you know, I'm an actor and a teacher, and so I've not been in a classroom to work. Mm. I find teaching acting a very useful, important thing to do. It does support acting as well as mm. my, uh, I found that quite a, a strange thing. Teaching online is a very weird thing. I mean, here we yeah. are, you and I, relating over this, this thing called Zoom and- um, Thing called Zoom. Yeah, thing. this thing called Zoom. And I, acting that you find, it's such a, a collaborative thing. A theater oh. is a collaborative thing. It's an interactive yeah. thing. You know, it's weird, it's strange. I'm still coming to terms with it, you know. Yeah, I mean, um, just, just on a personal note, I was, oh, I am technically a GSA student at the moment, but I did, right. uh, I was there for a month. Uh, I was there for the whole of January, but I deferred my place for the time being because it was all like this. Right. Uh, every lesson, we didn't have access to the studio. And, right. and from, <laughs> from first-hand experience, I can conclusively say that you can't learn to be an actor in your bedroom right from a computer screen it's yeah. certainly not the same experience as actually being in the room and feeling the energy of the place and actually working yes. off other people it's it's chalk and cheese the two yeah yeah the, two and the energy of the teacher too i mean you mentioned gsa i have very happy memories of being there actually mm. and in particular a wonderful teacher whom everyone starts i'm sure been through gso z and ricketts and i remember that he's a he is was he is a wonderful teacher and uh the enthusiasm and energy that comes from someone like that i don't think is necessarily readily transferable to a medium like this you know i might be wrong but it sounds like you've had a particular experience and you're you, you're clear about how you feel about it so <laughs> <laughs> well, i just I've, i'm just yearning for that reality to come but reality mm. or normality to come back and we can all just yeah. work on ourselves and just get back to where we be and hopefully this will be the year that uh Things start to change so yeah for that. yeah me too i hope so but uh, of course we can chat all day about that sort of thing and the politics behind it but let's not get too much into that nowadays okay. but uh, <laughs> but actually i think this, it's a question i'll ask you a bit later on actually about um in fact uh, Chekhov's writing being a social commentator or something like mm. that i wonder if he was alive what would he make of this but mm. more of that later so okay. i suppose really to start at the beginning really um uh, what was your first encounter with Chekhov, and and how and I suppose, and I, so that, that's the second part of the question. We'll start with that one. What was your first encounter with Chekhov? Well, um, it was actually at GSA, funnily enough, because ah. in those days I was on the postgraduate course then. That still exists. It was a year course, something like that. Yeah, that's what I, I, I remember. We did when, when the scene time, the scene work section of the course mm. came round. The yeah. first scene I was given to act was a scene from Three Sisters, yeah. in which I was cast. <laughs> it was players cast in those days. Sure. As Ferropont, a sort of night, an ancient Russian serf, <laughs> meaning, you know, a peasant who worked the land. Of course, I, I, I knew and understood absolutely nothing of that kind of character and that way of life and what that meant historically or anything or humanly. And so I blundered my way through it. He doesn't have much to say, but of course that was a acting lesson in itself because, you know, <laughs> it's the what it's what happens around the lines, if you like, that was that were really um is really important. But I, I was struck by the fact that Chekhov was a writer who didn't seem to have, even though I I felt this. Who didn't seem to have a thesis or a or a uh, an agenda to to uh, push, if that's the right verb, on his audience. Unlike, say, 
Ibsen, for example, who yeah. or Strindberg, they're very different writers to quote other 19th century writers. He he seemed to have this extraordinary capacity. I felt it in that scene. You know, Ferropon has this extraordinary speech about pancakes and Moscow. And you know, what the heck has this got to do with anything? But then you realize, I've realized subsequently that people talk in this rambling, disconnected, disjointed way without any sense of what's been before, <laughs> what's happening now. Mm. And he's revolutionary. And I think still is really as a writer who can capture that sense of reality unfolding in a lived in moment by moment way. You know? Yeah, very, very authentic and very mm. kind of true, true to life, yeah. very slice of life. Um, so I suppose, and second part of the question is, um, from that first experience and everything you've uh, encountered with Chekhov until this very day, what, what, on a personal level, what does it mean to you? What does Chekhov really strike you on a personal note? Oh, well, you know, he's the great poet of failure. <laughs> <laughs> Very if anyone's funny. an actor or a writer or a creative in this island, this island, they'll know what that means. And I don't say that despairingly, by the way. Mm. Uh, um, I, Chekhov's characters try and they may make a little effort, but he kind of, if he's saying anything at all, he doesn't really say much to us in terms of being someone with a message. Mm. It seems to be, to me at least, it's okay to be fragile. It's okay to be vulnerable, to fail, but it's not okay not to try, even a little bit. You know, I mean, if you think about three sisters, those three women want to get to Moscow, why? To make a better life for themselves. Mm. At the end of Uncle Vanya, Sonia says, you know, we, we will live through days and nights, but we will rest. There's always a sense in Chekhov that life can be and will be better than it is now, mm. which, you know, that is a message. I, I think that, you know, that's very important to me personally. And also, I think he feels beauty very deeply. Mm. You can't, I don't think you can really apprehend Chekhov in quite the way that you apprehend other playwrights. It's a bit like the mood that music induces in you or a painting. That's my feeling about him. And he's quite rare like that. Uh, I think that's quite an unusual experience to have of a playwright yeah. in the theatre or, you know, which is where he kind of worked principally. Um, so yeah, I suppose it's, it's beauty mm. and transience and failure. Those are the things which, <laughs> uh, but out of failure, the, the renewed effort to, to try again, yeah. which I think is a great theme anyway, in yeah. all art, really. Yeah, he's a, he strikes me as a very kind of yin-yang kind of writer in his way. He's very, there is, a lot of, there is a lot of darkness, but yet there is light in there as well. Yeah, yeah, most definitely. And he doesn't seem to, I mean, you know, we don't live our life in scenes or acts, you mm. know, and, and we don't live our life like it's a play. We, we just kind of go from one thing to the next, don't we, with more or less consciousness of that. And uh, Chekhov, Chekhov presents life in that way, I think. There's, there's not a, I mean, one has to remember also he was reacting or writing in a very different way to the kind of things that were being performed in the state-run theatres of his day they were used to seeing melodramas and farces and vaudevilles and pretty average stuff, if I'm honest with you, by all accounts. <laughs> <And> so <laughs> I'm being kind, but where when he came along, he was really writing in a different way. And, you know, one has to remember also, of course, I think that he was a short story writer as well, and a very prolific one. Mm. Um, and so he came to the theatre, 
you know, on the back of a lot of journalism and story and short story writing. And he's, I mean, he, I think if we hadn't written a single play, he'd be remembered as being a wonderful short story writer. Wow. You know, that's impressive. I mean, mm. I've often just, I mean, we're just hearing what you're talking about there about beauty and how um, there's, there, there seems to be like a generation of faith or something like that. Like, like as uh, Sonia at the end of Uncle Vanya has that speech, which we'll come on to a bit later. Yeah. Uh, saying that we will rest we will rest you know uh, yeah. it, it's it seems to be and i think she also says uh, god will smile on us as yes well. that's right and, uh, so i was i was often curious about how would you say that Chekhov was a man of of faith was he a man of god was he did he have that well that, that edge about him did he have a faith uh, i would say that first and foremost, he was a doctor, which is a rather strange answer yeah. to your question. But I think being yeah. a doctor, being a medical man, gave him a certain sense of objective detachment mm -hmm. from people's uh, drives and whims and, and attachments. I mean, there are people who are overtly religious in Chekhov in the sense of believing in a god, like Marina, for example, in Uncle Vanya. Mm -hmm. She's very much... Uh, of the peasant class who has a, a respect and a worldview for the almighty and the eternal mm. and that everything we do happens under the eye of, of of an almighty eternal force whether or not he subscribes to that i don't get that impression i don't really feel that he is somebody who subscribes to any political or, or firmly held religious notion i think he's got a gentle tenderness towards human folly and wisdom and greatness he doesn't judge people I think he accepts them in, oh. in a way. And if that's spiritual, which probably it is, rather than religious, then one could say he is that, you know. But as for being orthodox, I mean, he was raised, I think, in a quite a strict religious way, um, if I remember rightly. Because um, he was he was came from humble origins. I think he's the daughter, son of a, of a grocer, a greengrocer or something. He came from oh. very humble origins. He wasn't born aristocratically and he wasn't born into the theatre or anything like a, an arts uh, life, life, you know, he didn't have those antecedents. Um, so, yeah, I mean, um, there's, there's a pervading sense of the universe in his work in the sense of a, of, of a force, of an energy, but uh, I don't get the impression there's anything specifically uh, religious about him in his writing. Mm. He has a very encompassing view. He doesn't judge people who are, but I don't think he's somebody who signs up to any or subscribes to any special religious notion, in my yeah. opinion. Yeah, yeah that, that's, that's fascinating to know because it even it seems like with his work and even with his life, there's a, there's a balance between, you know, do we trust, you know, do we just listen to the science or do we have faith as well? Mm. Is there something that's, that science can't explain? Yeah. And I think, you know, to me that, it, I mean, I've, you know, unfortunately, well, we, we, <laughs> I never knew the man and none of us of our generation did. But, uh, you know, we, there seems to be, I, I get an image of somebody who has this ability to, who, who knows on the surface that there is, with the science, that there is facts and there is um, a reason why everything happens because of the body's natural processes or nature's processes or universe whatever it is and yet at the same time he looks at that and thinks he recognizes that there are things that are out of out of our control etc and so is there another force 
at play here as well. Because obviously, I could be getting this completely wrong, but uh, that that's that's something which I think is quite interesting. That he's like a man who can't decide whether he whether he trusts the facts or whether there is something else which we're not privy to. So, but so he's not one way or the other. He's open to both possibilities. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I think that's that's accurate. I mean, it sounds like we're talking about someone who couldn't make his mind up here, but yeah, I, yeah, don't, much, yeah. I don't think that's, that's the case. <laughs> well, yeah, my, well, you know, to go back to the, the medical thing again, I, I think he had a, an objectivity and a detachment, and there's always a doctor in his plays, and the doctor is quite a, can be in, in Astrov's case, Langovania, somewhat cynical and detached and cruel, possibly, about yeah human life and even his own life his point being my own life doesn't matter it's what will come after is what matters uh, and um even he can't explain the, de the depression he feels at the beginning of the play having lost a patient under morphine whom he was mm. treating for spotted fever you know uh, um uh, and similarly politically too i mean um chekhov was writing and living at a time of great political ferment you know mm. we're not Uncle Vanya is what, 1898, maybe a bit earlier than that, but we're, we're some years off the first Russian Revolution in 1905. Mm. You know, there is a sense of change, but you don't ever get the impression that he's overly interested in, 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 in the sense of foregrounding it in his work, mm. unlike, say, Gorky, a contemporary of his, who, who you can tell has a very strong feeling about the the, the 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 lower orders the lower classes if you like the working classes and mm. uh, the need to somehow empower them and make them better even though of course uh, there's problems with that but he, he was a, he was a committed communist in the way that you know, Chekhov was neither social democrat nor czarist nor you know so yeah I don't know I've probably not answered your answered your question very well no, 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 I mean that, that, no, I mean that's great that, that's great um you know that, that it's, it's really interesting to have like the the, the full kind of background to it and the forbearance of his choices really um, i suppose that brings me on to something which we're going to talk about later but i think it's quite appropriate now really is even though we've talked about there he didn't subscribe to you know afterlife you know you know faith of science uh political party etc um you know, he, he would have lived through uh, the Russian Revolution from, from the early years of 1891 through to 1924. Um, um, I believe, believe I'm right in saying that. <laughs> and uh, and he, would have, he would have been around for the, in 1861 for the emancipation of the serfs by yeah. Emperor Alexander II. Mm. And for anyone who doesn't know what that is, uh, 230 million people received liberty and essentially their civil rights. And so they were able to uh, maintain lands, they were able to uh, basically have, have rights and assert their, their political views, they could vote, etc. Um, so, and of course, throughout this, the, the Russian Revolution, there came uh, a number of very significant events, but one of them being Bloody Sunday in 1905, where Tsar Nicholas II uh, and soldiers opened fire on a group of people, on a group of uh, peaceful protesters outside um uh, just the palace in in moscow and i mean i remember it's, and it's it's actually really refreshing because i studied this for my a-level history actually so yeah. it's really nice to dip back into that actually mm. um so at the time of you know russia in those years was full of complete civil unrest and loads of people you know i can only imagine political speech here political speech there rally here rally there and then full-blown revolution in 1917 mm. um 
I've often wondered, um, despite, even though Chekhov was on the fence of all this stuff, do, do you think he actually had a, a relationship or a sympathy with the revolution in Russia, or did he sort of keep himself very much away from it? What do you think? Well, uh, um, at the risk of your def of deflating your question completely, I think we should remember that Chekhov did actually die in 1904. So Cherry Orchard was somewhat before, I mean, 1905 was the first revolution and then the the, the, the great one if you, if you like the, the the one that sort of yeah. rocked the world in 1917 of course he he, he departed the scene long before then but <laughs> i think having said that though yeah, it's very interesting it. <laughs> no i think it's a very important point because as you were talking about those events mm -hmm. so I, one thing struck me was my god how topical those events now seem to us today just briefly yeah. in terms of what's been going on in america and the protests and uh, and the aftermath even in another way in this country with, with with police involvement and so on um of course jacob didn't live to see the russian version of those in the early 20th yeah. century but if you take a play like the cherry orchard for example um that's a very interesting foreteller or forerunner of what's to come because you remember at the end of the play the cherry orchard almost the last sound effect if you is the sound of the axe axes falling on the trees and of course one can read into that, into that what one wants to but it is no doubt about it that orchard has been brought up by the aristocrat from the aristocratic classes by the middle classes mm. who would in their time be liquidated entirely by lenin in mm. the russian revolution you know, they bought up the land, but they weren't able to keep it either. Mm. You know, they saw that, that they it was taken from them by force. So I think Chekhov has this sense of, of impending change. And even Uncle Vanya, the peasants arrived to discuss the land. You mentioned the emancipation of the serfs. Mm. I mean, yes, they were emancipated, but they had no money to pay for it. Yeah. They had no money to buy the land that they, that they were given. Um, and so you know, it, it, things were in a state of transition. He's a great playwright of transition. You know, we're still living in a police state. The Tsar is, the Tsar is still very much in control. Yeah. Tsar Nicholas II, the last Tsar, I think, when Chekhov was alive, was yeah. very reactionary and would remain so to the bitter end. So the emancipation thing was a bit of a blip, I think. It's a, it was a liberal blip. And then there was a reaction against that. I mean, look what's happened in America now, you know. I mean, we, we, we had the Trump years, didn't we? And now we've got Joe Biden in. And, you know, right. it's how human society evolves. Who could have foretold the Trump explosion, you know? Um, I'm still in shock even today. Yeah, I, there you go, you see. So, yeah. yeah. Well, I, I do apologise to, to anyone watching, any Chekhovians watching, for getting my dates wrong. And uh, <laughs> thinking that he was living beyond 1904 so it's no no problem i mean you know these things are written down aren't they i suppose but yeah dates but i i think it's interesting i mean i you know i he he was a far-sighted man and but i just don't think he was really he was first and foremost a writer and he wrote for money too he was commercial you know i mean yeah. he had to write he wrote because he had to support a family and uh, and he also had to support his various philanthropic undertakings i mean he was an architect well doctor he bought he built a hospital for the sick in odessa didn't okay. charge a penny for it now of course we you know look at what's happening in the nhs it be you know the, the the forces of 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 commerce are gathered around it's always a threat in america of course there's no such thing as a national health service yeah, but Chekhov felt that that was the right thing to do he his sister was a nurse you took people in who couldn't pay you didn't charge them for it yeah 
I probably better not go on too much because I might right. drift off into some kind of diatribe. But well, that's great. It's know, great. No, not at all. Not at all. Um, it's a very different way of looking at life. And I suppose, you know, he, yeah, he did have an intense feeling about people's suffering, obviously. I mean, mm. could he not? And, uh, and where he was able to alleviate stress, he was constantly helping his family out. His letters are full of dealing with requests for money from this person or that person, mm. you know, and uh, he was not an easy man to live with, I don't think, or be around. I mean, uh, and he, but he knew he was, he knew he, he knew that was the case. So he's like, his marriage, was broke his marriage to Olga Dnipro, who's a uh, leading actress the Moscow Art Theatre, was uh, was punctuated by long periods of absence. They spent long periods of time apart from each other because of her work and his. But that's possibly why their marriage survived. Also, he knew he was dying, and I think that lent him a certain detachment too. You know. Mm. Um, yeah. Well, it's no, but it's it's good to get all the context in and actually learn. So I didn't know about the uh, the hospital how he built that. Yeah. 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 Hands and. Free admission, really, for mm, those in and and yes, I mean he was yeah extraordinarily generous with his time and his money. Um, mm. Yeah, I'm glad that his reputation is still celebrating to this day with acts of kindness like that. Really, so that's fantastic. Mm. Um, cool. So without further ado, let's um, let's jump into the play which we want to look at today. Of course, it's Anya, yeah. which we've touched on a little bit already. Uh, so a bit of background, and I will get my facts right this time. Uh, <laughs> so, okay, so the play was first published in 1898, and it was first produced in 1899 by the Moscow Art Theatre by by a slightly well-known director known by Konstantin Stanislavsky. Uh, <laughs> I wonder what happened to him. Mm, yes. Uh, <laughs> and uh, so, and a quick rundown of the play now. So, if anyone watching or listening hasn't seen the play and is keen to, then mute your audio or press pause, skip ahead, do it now. So, so you save the spoilers. So essentially, Uncle Vanya, the summary, is a play that dramatizes a rich couple visiting their rural home and we begin to see the misfortunes of each character begin to unravel throughout the play. So you're going to have to help me with the uh, pronunciation of the sure. professor's names. I'll do my best. <laughs> How do you say it? I'll do my best. Which one is the name? Which one uh, professor, is it? Serebriakov. 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 Yeah, I'm not sure if I've even got that correct myself, but that's. Uh, yeah, I think I think that's I think that's correct. Just give me one second. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Um, Serebriakov. Yeah, Serebriakov. Go on. While, while I'm looking. Get, yeah. So Professor Serebriakov. Yes. Uh, lives in the city. Uh, he has a rural home which is run by the rest of his family. Uh, Uncle Vanya is the owner of the estate. Uh, Vanya and local doctor fall for the professor's much younger, attractive second wife, Yelena, whom the doctor attempts to woo later in the play unsuccessfully. Uh, Sonia, who is the professor's daughter from his first marriage, is in love with the doctor whose name is Bakaya. Uh, she is also envious of her stepmother's beauty. So we begin to see various misfortunes and jealousy and just basic flaws that each character begin to unravel over the course of two and a half hours. Uh, the professor shows very little love for his family. He's very rarely in the uh, in the house. In fact, we, we see him at the top of the play uh, and then towards the end where he attempts to sell the property, uh, which brings me on to he announces plans to move to Finland with Yelena and sell the property because living in Russia has become too expensive. 
uh, tensions overflow. And then in amongst those tensions, Uncle Vanya attempts to shoot his brother-in-law, but, um, but fails. Later, Sonia and her grandmother, is it, is it, I know it's, I think I'm getting this right, is it if Maria? Maria Vasilyevna, isn't it? Vasilyevna, that one. Vasilyevna, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, I'm trying to sound like I speak Russian, but it's just like, <laughs> uh, discover that Vanya has been uh, stealing morphine from the doctor and has had suicidal tendencies, uh, but they make him perform a dramatic U-turn with his emotional and mental health, and his plan is foiled, and he ends up seeing life more on the brighter side of things. Uh, the professor and Yelena agree to keep the estate and let everything go on as normal. And in the play's conclusion, uh, we have the family going about their everyday tasks. And uh, Vanya is left complaining about how much work he has to do to please everybody and the everyday toils and just things he has to do to keep everyone happy. But he realizes that no matter how much he does, he will never get nothing in return. And that's when Sonia, which I think this last scene in particular, which uh, the, the production I wanted to actually talk about today was the, did you manage to catch the one at the Pinter Theatre? Yeah, I did, I did. And I, I think also it's actually still available on iPlayer. It is, on yes. On BBC no, iPlayer. On iPlayer, we watched it yesterday. And, uh, yeah. so, and the last scene in particular is one of the most moving scenes I think I've ever experienced in the mm. theatre, which was um, Amy Lou Woods, who was in that production, with any, any of you remember from, uh, she was in Sex Education, uh, she did a fantastic job with Sonia. Uh, she reminds Vanya in this very emotional candlelit scene at the end that when they die, everything that they have, everything they have been through has been worth it. Elsewhere, she says, God, God, as we said earlier, God will smile on us. And her last three lines, I believe, are, we will rest, we will rest, we will rest. And so the play ends on a very... Um, a faithful note that even though everything that's happened to them up to this point has been completely awful, there is still a chance for them later in life and of course beyond the grave. So uh, so my first impressions of the play uh, was uh, the play all happens inside one room. So it's a drama one room and it's that typical uh, uh, drama of everyone just batting off each other and it, and I suppose to begin, really, it was very, I, I don't know if this was, <laughs> it, it was directed by Ian Rickson and, uh, and uh, it was a new adaptation by Conor McPherson. And I just wonder if Ian had actually had some sort of weird dream where he foresaw the coronavirus coming to the English shores, locking everything down and all of us having to be contained in our houses, in our homes, with our family, our partners or by ourselves, trapped on computers, etc. And I just thought that was a very, it's a very apt play to be shown at that specific time with all these characters just being colliding with each other all the, all the time. And um, yeah, I mean, it, it really brought out a lot of the uh, family dynamics in a way, which I thought was really, uh, yeah. really yeah. fascinating. Is there anything more you could say about the the dynamics, the family dynamics of these characters in Uncle Vanya? Well, I think you made a very good point there uh, about it in terms of our own experience of being locked in and locked up and locked down. I mean, the play does take place, you know, in, in, a, in a, 
a couple of rooms in what's really essentially a farmhouse, but really a, a Russian uh, state, which is very, very different to our own sort of stately home. It's not Downton Abbey, that's for sure. You know, it's a rather <laughs> run-down run down kind of Russian estate. But um, no, I think uh, it's, it's interesting in so many ways. It's typically Chekhovian in the way that no two people ever really meet on the same level. Rarely in Chekhov and certainly in Uncle do two people really understand each other. Mm. There's always a misunderstanding. There's a superficial misunderstanding and a deeper misunderstanding. You know, uh, for example, you take the, the relationship between the professor, Serebriakov, and his wife, uh, who is considerably younger than him, actually, Yelena Andreevna. Um, Russian names are always confusing, aren't they? We've got that, that, that middle name, Andreevna, signifies that she is Yelena, daughter of Andrei. <laughs> um, uh, you know, and then you've got the surname at the end. And of course, being a woman, she would have taken the professor's surname, Serebriakov, so she's Serebriakovna. You know, it's that Russian uh, way of looking at naming. But no, in terms, to get back to the, the point, I mean, I, the relationships are, are what, what is cr uh, crucial here. And, and um, Certainly, there's a misunderstanding on a very profound level between the professor and his young wife. I mean, she she uh, arrives in this rather unknown and rather alien environment where she can't seem to find a place. Uh, she's ostensibly the lady of the house, but nobody treats her as such. Um, and she's walked into a world that has is is beginning to kind of fall apart because uh, Vanya. Um, he's called uncle, but not in the Russian, not in the British and American way of an uncle. It's a term of affection, really. Oh. Jaja, I think, is the name, is the Russian name for uncle. But uh, she comes into an environment which is essentially falling apart. I mean, Vanya has paid off this historic debt of some 25,000 rubles um, uh, on the estate, which uh, he and his father uh, purchased and and which was intended to be a, is intended to be a dowry um, for Sonia um, and uh, um, you know his his his, his uh, he finds himself without employment really because the estate's been, the, the debt's been paid off and um, yeah there's a lot of chaos things at work is not being done Sonia is having to to do the bulk of the work herself um there's also a um a retired or impoverished landowner called Teliagin who who no longer has a place to live but he's been taken in by uh, the family in the same way that Anfisa the nurse and three sisters he's given shelter uh, but his estate's been, the remains of his estate's been absorbed into the Vanya estate uh -huh. uh, or the professor's estate. Um, and yeah, there's considerable turmoil. And of course, there's a storm brewing as well. And then when there's a big weather change in Chekhov, that always indicates turbulence and dissatisfaction. Yeah. And when the storm erupts, of course, there are other human storms that follow, culminating in that tragic but ridiculous attempt by, by Vanya to shoot the professor, yeah. having discovered that finally, in his own view, the man is a complete and total fraud and what's more, he wishes to rob his niece of her, of her patrimony, the estate. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a comedy of misunderstanding, really. And I think yeah. that's important to remember with Chekhov. I think uh, English productions can sometimes, in my view only, of course, uh, sometimes we, we are guilty perhaps of, of, of applying too much comedy or too much weighty tragedy. And I think, you know, we, we, we fall, so it falls somewhere in between. It's difficult to, to, to adjust to, I think, 
um, the, the Russian, we, we're not Russians, we can't pretend to be Russians, but at the same time, there's a very distinct sensibility, you know, at work with Chekhov. Um, but yeah, uh, even back to relationships again, you know, Yelena and, and Vanya, they're both outsiders. You know, they both find themselves with nothing to do, and yet they don't really meet on mm. the same level. She's intrigued by the doctor, who's another very mysterious figure, you know, who seems to have no romantic connections at all. Um, lives on his own in a very strange way in a, in a forest without much human contact except the family that he comes to visit, Vanya's family, you know, uh, and the professor whom he tries to treat unsuccessfully. Um, uh, and um, yeah, there's, there's a lot of mismatching going on. I mean, Chekhov's supreme in that, I think. In The Seagull, everyone's in love with the wrong person. You know, uh, <laughs> and he's he's really interested in that. I think and it's quite really well orchestrated. Um, I think um, yeah, I, I remember sort of encountering our three sisters at university and just sort of reading it. And and I suppose I wasn't a, I, I was aware of Chekhov. But I didn't really understand him at all. But I remember reading it, thinking, my God, this is everyone's so depressed. Everyone's so dull. Everyone's just really who would go and watch a something like this honestly but then i was uh i was lucky enough to be at a podcast recording um uh in november before last with uh denise goff and uh, jenna russell and derek jacoby and uh, jenna and uh, denise talked about their experience with chekhov and it astounded me when they said that chekhov is funny and i remember saying to them i, mean, well, I wish i'd said to them at the time but i remember thinking no it's not i i mean obviously i wasn't as involved with it but they told us they said to the audience um they went and saw Chekhov actually in Moscow mm. and they were astounded they themselves were astounded about how much the audience laughed yeah how much they cried how much they really engaged with the material and there was this joy in the room as well and mm. and it wasn't until I sort of went away did a bit of research and I think um I think there's a nice comparison here way in a way with um with Beckett and Pinter, and I spoke to uh, Harry Burton, who was a friend and collaborator of Pinter as well. And we talked about mm -hmm. how somehow this, there's something about this, the the nature of life and how unpredictable and how untangible it can be. And you know, we we simply know what's we don't know what's around the corner. As Chekhov, as you said earlier, it's a moment by moment process. And sometimes I think it's a very British thing, but maybe a universal thing as well, that when we experience bad news or we just, or we're just having one of those days where things just, you know, everything that could go, that, that could possibly go wrong can just go wrong. And yet we don't, we don't get angry. We don't, you know, we don't throw punches or anything. We just sit there and think, <laughs> my God, could this day get any worse? And and there's a and there's a laughter in that, and I think that's the genius of Chekhov, and actually what what makes it funny is the fact that sometimes people's lives can get to a point where there's so much against them, but yet there is humour in that in that oppression and mm. oppression. Does, does that make sense? It does. It does very much so. Actually, I was thinking about my own experience as we're talking about coming when I came on air, just to, you know my troubles and difficulties with, with this technology that kept coming and going in the middle yeah. of quite an important meeting and um, yeah, yeah. I actually had that thought could this get any worse and I began to find myself smiling at it and I think that uh, yes uh, 
possibly in the past English productions have been maybe guilty, if that's the right word, of, 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 of assuming that it's a very depressing, yeah. tragic process. Yeah, and yet the comedy of a man in Uncle Vanya trying to seduce a woman, Vanya and Yelena, in a very inept fashion, you know, or trying to shoot the man whom he holds responsible for all of his woes and misfortunes and failing to do so at point blank range, you know, <laughs> I mean, yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's pretty close and he has more than one shot and he can't do it, yeah. you know. How is that possible? I know. How is that possible? And yeah, and and finding humor in that too. And um, yeah, you know that that's. I mean, I've seen a couple of productions of it in Russian actually. Uh, oh, yeah. In the um, in Milan at the Piccolo Theatre years ago, I saw the Marley Drama Theatre in Petersburg perform, and and also latterly uh, a Romanian production actually here in London a few years ago. At the same time as an English production playing on the West End at the same time, it's very instructive to see the very the, the very marked differences between between the two. I think Russian actors, and generalising, have got a have got a kind of preparation oh. and a, and a, and a facility which perhaps because of our training education system and probably economically too, we are not set up to produce that kind of actor. Mm. But um, and that no doubt contributes to this sensation you have as well of, of, of awful things happening but people uh, experiencing the highs and the lows mm. you know uh, of people laugh and they smile and in Russia as well I think there's a lot of song and, and humming and people are always humming and singing and there's a lot of that going on uh, that's a very un-English thing to do and I think uh, that I remember that being a very marked feature of Russian productions of Jack Orr's scene Mm. that people are singing and playing and and they're involved in all kinds of activities like that you don't see that so often in, in, in english productions though i would say in rickson's one did bring out the humor actually so, you yeah. know, i mean uh, toby jones was a very funny value <laughs> if that's you know he, he did bring out a lot of that hapless comedy which he's excellent at you know. <laughs> yeah especially uh, the first scene especially as well with between uh, the doctor and um uh, again i Ideas in the grandmother of, of um, oh yeah Maria Vasilievna yeah yeah yeah, yeah. But, but what Simon said <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah so between there there's a lovely conversation between the two of them where I I, I get I think I'll, I'll get the basics of it right I'm not I'm not gonna get it spot on but uh, um he's uh, she says he says to her something like did you think so it's something like do did you think I was handsome. I did once. Yeah. Now, yeah. now you're much. old. <laughs> <laughs> now not so much. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's very blunt, isn't it? That's yeah. that first scene between Marina, the nurse, and Astrov, the nurse. Uh, Mikhail Lvovich Astrov, the doctor. And it's a lovely scene because they're waiting for the professor and his entourage to turn up. And yeah. they're very late. Tea is, you know, it's second tea of the day, if you like. It should be at midday. It's now two o'clock in the afternoon and their timetable has been thrown out of sync. And so they're waiting. And while they're waiting, they talk, of course, yeah. uh, in the way people do. And um, yeah, Astroff confides in her, doesn't he? And mm. talks about how his life has changed. And yeah. he talks about this unfortunate death on the operating table. But yeah, the looks, your looks have changed, you're drinking too much. You know, that's, that's the voice of the nurse. She comes out with this very salty, earthy, common sense wisdom. Mm. You know, she's not afraid to say that as well. You know? Yeah, I'm just thinking that in terms of just about what you just said there, in terms of you know, you're, you're not as handsome and you're drinking too much. Um, I think I've got, a, a, there was um, a great uh, lecture from a guy called um, 
uh, again, I'm going to mispronounce his name. I'm so sorry, listening. Go for it. Yeah. Uh, you can tell Russian not, not, not my thing. Uh, <laughs> not mine, sir. Don't worry. <laughs> Do your best. <laughs> I so it's this was a, a lecture given by uh, a gentleman called Andrei Ma Malev Babel. Mm -hmm. I, again, I did my best. Uh, who's an assistant professor of theatre at Florida State University, and he gave a lecture in October 2007 specifically on this play and Chekhov's um, uh, history and his life. And at one point, he said, uh, quote, Russian writers are social commentators. He wrote that inner freedom was more important than political or social freedom. And as Chekhov himself said once, he was trying to squeeze the slave out of himself. And uh, so I think, and, and it sort of ties into what we were talking about earlier with the emancipation of the serfs, and even though this was written long after that, I think even though this was this is a family drama and everything, and is, is there still a hint of that social commentary kind of creeping in? Because you've got a population who is dependent on drink, and you've got, despite the humor, as we've talked about, there is actually a seriousness in their bodies, in their characters and things like that. Do you think that there is still that political and social political inequality that still exists, that's still creeping in despite the humor? So you've got, you've got uh, comedy, which is serious and seriousness, which is comedy, except mm. from this angle, uh, you look at it from the former, which is even though this is funny, we can't escape the fact that this is serious. And this is why, because look at the political landscape, which Chekhov was writing at the time. Yeah, yeah. I think, well, comedy and tragedy in life are, are really inexplicably, inextricably linked, aren't they? That's and it's same. readers of plays and critics, perhaps of them, who like to pass all things up. Or maybe it's the human condition. We like to know a tragedy is a tragedy and a comedy is a comedy. And yet that's not like how our lives are lived at all, at least not mine anyway. It's a mixture of, of high and low and, mm. and both, really. Um, but I, I think it's quite hard to make a case for Chekhov being a, a socially committed or socially oriented playwright. I, mean, mm. I think he's interested in the soul. <laughs> that doesn't sound too, too, too highfalutin. I, I mean, you mentioned about inner inner emancipation there, and mm. all of his characters are, uh, I think, struggling uh, with that. You know, I, I mean, you take a character like Yelena Andreevna you know, she has the opportunity for freedom and adventure. It's offered to her, albeit in the form of, 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 of an illicit relationship with the doctor, mm. whom she does admit to having deep feelings for. But, you know, this is an old fashioned form, formal class. And then as now, that kind of act of marital infidelity, not something she can really contemplate and yet, you you will her at least i do to break out from her conformity mm. uh, and it's an inner conformity as much as an external one there's a wish in her to be obedient to to to, to do the right thing even in her attempts to match sonia or find out master by some calculation his his real feelings for sonia mm. her own sonia's feelings for Astro are very clear but you know and it all backfires again you know, again, that's part of che Chekhov's comedy routine, you know, human being undertakes some of the best intentions and it all backfires. Mm. As they say, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. And um, <laughs> Chekhov, Chekhov illustrates that saying, I think, very well in so many ways. 
Um, so yeah, I think it's inner slavery he is interested in, but yeah. I don't know whether he has much hope necessarily that yeah. people will will break out from their from their chains. Certainly, no change of political system is going to do it. Otherwise, because that's not never really talked about in his plays. He doesn't suggest that there'll be a new dawn with the revolution or something. Right. It's not it's not propagandist in that way at all. Um, it's it's an inner life he's interested in, and I think as an actor as well, it makes him supremely challenging and invigorating to act because you're not going to get as an actor the situation from the lines or the set or the costumes. You're you're going to have to come on with your history in the way that you and I have met today for the first time. You know, we've come from whatever day we've come from. You know, uh, nothing about your 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 life and uh, outside these what we're experiencing together now. And yet, you could have come from the most. I hope it has isn't true. The most awful tragedy, mm. and yet you are not. You know, yeah. wailing and weeping and gnashing your teeth. You're you're doing what all human beings do, which is get on with the next thing. Yeah, that's quite difficult to act, I think. <laughs> oh, usually, usually, yeah. because we act as what the show things, don't we? Yeah, you know, we want to show us being. So, but you put it very well. You, you, you were saying earlier, you know, about the comedy of it. Is that could it get any worse? We we don't uh, fall about, you know, raging and gnashing at it. Sometimes we do, but yeah, yeah. you know, it's unusual. Yeah, I think uh, yeah, I think that actually ties very nicely into um, one of Chekhov's actually. Uh, if you further down his family tree and his, um, I think I'm, I'm going to get this wrong again. Uh, his his cousin is it um his uh not cousin his um nephew is it Michael Chekhov Michael mm -hmm. Chekhov was his nephew yeah 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 and, yeah that's um, right uh, just to preface this actually I, the the months that I was at GSA we opened up our first session on uh, we had a whole uh, module on Michael Chekhov actually and uh, I'll talk a bit more about his process in just a second but. Um, <clears throat> <laughs> the uh, our teacher who ran it sort of opened up by saying, okay, what does anybody know about Chekhov already? Just Chekhov, not Michael, not Anton, just Chekhov. And I said, yeah, I know about Chekhov. Yeah, I loved Uncle Vanya. You know, I loved, I went on, I did this big spiel about I know, the family, the tensions, the history, blah, 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 all this stuff. And then at the end of it, she went, yeah, okay, that's very nice. But I was actually talking about Michael Chekhov. <laughs> <laughs> I was just like, oh, for goodness sake. That's a very Chekhovian moment now, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, very fitting, very fitting. Very fitting, yeah. <laughs> and uh, I just I remember sat there thinking, oh, God, I feel stupid now. A bit like what I felt today, just to get, get my facts mm. wrong. But, um, yeah, but, but specifically for, for anyone listening who's not aware of uh, Michael Chekhov and his acting process, he was, uh, it was a practitioner who did most of his work in Moscow. And uh, his philosophy when I mean, I mean there's countless books written about it but i think at its heart is a of course i don't know if you've done this yourself uh simon but uh, he taught his philosophy is about the inner journey and that's the same about uh chekhov as well about anton chekhov where he talks about you know it's funny how in most of his plays like the seagull uncle vanya and the cherry orchard all the significant events seem to happen off stage and then what you do see is the repercussions or the build-up to something that's going to happen. Um, so with Michael Chekhov, he has two ways of working. There's a, there's a, you sort of identify with your inner artistic center, which is where the solar plexus is in, in your body. 
and uh, and he asks you to play a scene and your inner world either contracts whether you're trying to hide a piece of bad news or not show any emotion or react to anything or you can expand ex, expand or not that's pretty one word but you can either contract or expand and you you let them see everything and of course as an actor you don't overact it but you feel it on the inside and then you burst it out out there from your soul from your core of your body and you let it vibrate out into the world and there's two different ways of working there mm -hmm. um, so i think so I, I think it's fair to say that that there seemed to be a trend in the Chekhov uh, theatre gene in, in their family in a way that it was all about the inner experience. You know, don't show it as mm. such, feel it, and then mm. what you want to get will follow shortly afterwards. I mean, did you get that sort of feeling when you did uh, uh, when you did Chekhov, Chekhov at uh, GSA? Well, I mean, uh, I'm going back a few years now, and I think we are possibly that the, the, the training system has changed as, as all training systems do. And um, I didn't really come across Michael Chekhov at all as a, as a, as a, mm. a man of the theatre director and actor until later, uh, after I'd left GSA, um, you know, but uh, I, I, I was aware, I was aware of his work in name only, really. Yeah. Um, yeah. But uh, of course, he was one of Stanislavski's most gifted gifted students wasn't he of in the course. Moscow Art Theatre mm -hmm. along with others too like Bakhtangov and Mayahol but he was as you say very very different I mean I found that um, uh, my very limited knowledge of it and this is always through second hand because I never obviously clearly studied with the, with the, with the man himself but mm. um, I found that whole uh, uh, emphasis on atmosphere quite quite useful you know, or to work, walk through an atmosphere with a feeling of ease, or with a with an experience of tension in my heart. You know, the, it's a very, a very direct and accessible way of experiencing um, uh, emotional life. Because of course, if you put your body in a certain position, you're going to experience the concomitant feelings that arise out of that sense of contraction. I mean, I'm doing it now. You can't, perhaps, you know, but I mean, if I'm just constricted like this. I've already got a feeling of, of a sense of impending doom in my stomach, you know, <laughs> and it starts to make me look around either side and, you know, and rock on my on my haunches like as I am doing now. I'm not thinking about doing that. It just comes as a result of putting my body in a certain position. And I think that was my understanding of that way of looking at, at, at acting. I mean, you know, it's one of many ways in, isn't it? I, I mean, he was a remarkable actor. I mean, you can see him in that Hitchcock film, Spellbound, where he plays a doctor in that, I think. Mm. And his work's remarkable for its detail. Um, you know, uh, um, and um, yeah, I think also in, in, he, he taught in Hollywood, didn't he, for quite a few years. And I think he had some quite interesting students, the likes of Jack Palance, even Marilyn Monroe and Neil Brenner, and that came to him. And um, he was able to help them even on screen, you know, and he, he, yeah. he uh, I think, 
was initially quite resistant to the whole notion of screen acting, but he, I think he learned to love it. As he kind of said, it's, it's acting in parts, it's acting in bits. You learn to act in bits and you, you keep, you do that, you polish that bit really clearly and carefully. And then the next bit comes along, you know, it's like a glass, he said, a glass of water. You have a, you pick up the glass, it's the first bit, second, raise it to your lips, third bit, you drink it. And you know, it's the fullness with which you do each of those things that when put together on film, can lead can lead to a very deep experience, I think, for the viewer. Um, but no, I think he's a fascinating man. He had his troubles, didn't he? He was an alcoholic. He, he mm -hmm. suffered acutely from depression. But he, he had a training school here, which I don't think exists anymore. Is it Dartington Hall? Uh, I think, he, I think the, so. before the Second World War, he ran a, he ran a, a studio here in England. Yeah, and that's how we kind of have come to the Stanislavski teaching i suppose indirectly through through michael chekhov because he he actually taught here before the war you know mm. yeah well that's it's something about uh there seems to be like a a good correlation in the family about how the the, the ability to sort of to feel it on the inside and then mm. that feeling of feeling of ease that was a thing i missed out yeah uh, to go through every moment because we're you know when we're on stage you know, there's a, you know, particularly, a, you know, I think in our early years of just sort of discovering acting and discovering theatre, we feel like we have to, like, give it everything, like, give it yeah. loads of effort and really yeah. show people, like, we're happy or we're sad, you know, but in fact, that looks really unrealistic and mm. fake, I mean, even though acting is essentially telling stories that didn't happen to us, but you want to tell it with, you want to make it real, you want to make mm. it as real as possible. Mm. Um, but it's fascinating to, to hear how, you know, we go through our lives not worried about what our face looks like. We don't, we don't you know, we don't know what face we're putting, obviously. Um, we've just been it on the inside. And as a result, we, I suppose we've always, we've all had that moment where we have to just either a feeling of joy and we look at another person, or we have a feel, feeling of absolute dread and like, I hate you. <laughs> and, and we look at that other person. Uh, yeah. But people can see it, and we're, even though we're not saying anything, even though we're not doing anything, it's visible. It's mm. visible because our inner reality reflects the outer reality. I think, as yeah. one of the Greeks said, I can't remember which one, but something yeah. along those lines. Uh, and um, and yeah, so I kind of that brings me on to about process, really mm. about about Chekhov. I mean, I've, I'm sorry to ask you again to sort of delve back to your early days of Chekhov oh, go for it. <laughs> or, your, or your experiences since then, since then, of course. But um, again, there seems to be with British productions, there seems to be a very slow kind of turgid pace to, to, um, to, to Chekhov. And, and when you go to Russia, it's, it's, it's more, it's, it's freer and it's more pace and it's more real mm. essentially. Um, I, hope, I hope just bear with me. I mean, there was a great review that was published in The Guardian, actually, in, back in January of, of last year. Um, and it goes, and particularly with Conor McPherson's version, it says it really applauds how it didn't stick to the original kind of, you know, the, the trend of Britishness of being very slow and turgid, but it actually moved forward. So, so it's, it, it is a little wordy, so just bear with me. I won't, mm. I won't take too long. He says, uh, the Guardian says, Conor McPherson's adaptation is perfectly weighted, does not radically reinvent or revolutionize Chekhov's 19th century story. It returns us to the great mournful spirit of Chekhov's tale about unrequited love 
aging and disappointment in middle age while giving us a slicker modern beat. McPherson script a stripped vivid has a stripped vivid simplicity which quickens the pace of the drama. Every character is fully realized, including the ancillary roles that bring more comic relief and to finish it says a perfect tragic comedy. So what would you say about about the pace of Chekhov and the process of of getting to know the material and performing it essentially? Um well I mean there's one's experience as a viewer and there's experience of teaching or directing and they're obviously they're obviously very different. I find as a viewer I found as so I found as a viewer that that production had in conjunction with other ones I've seen of that play in English done in, in England um, a great deal more lightness and humor mm. about it than I'd seen previously. Um, I think as I said earlier that um, English productions of Chekhov have been weighed down possibly by a, an overdue reverence and respect for the great Russian master and have attempted to kind of replicate a rather ponderous rhythm. And I think that's quite clearly born out of an attempt to be Russian, which we can't be, it's absurd. Uh, um, and I, I like the Inrix one, you know, in the sense that it, it for, the point, for the point of view that it, um, it um, didn't attempt to update or reroute it or set it in another environment, which is nothing wrong with that, but it's, it, it just presents a whole other series of difficulties, I think, you know. Um, so I, I think that production really represented, you know, a step forward, possibly, you know, uh, but what is a Chekhov? You can't really say definitively what a Czech, what an ideal Chekhov production is, because it's going to be seen through the eyes of that culture at that time with those people, you know. Um, I think um, in terms of playing him, this is only my, my experience. I've tried to encourage actors I'm working with to to really have a very full understanding of the emotional history of the characters they're playing. Mm. Um, and so we do spend quite some considerable time, even on Zoom, we found a way of, mm. of improvising uh, situations, events that are referred to in the play, but are not directly experienced by the characters during the course of the play's events. Mm. Um, you know, because I think that lends a history and a weight to whatever's going on. Just as we, you and I don't have to think about our personal history, we know it. And mm. acting is supremely an act of knowing and not showing, isn't it? Mm. And I think Chekhov was written for that kind of style of, of way of looking at, uh, at life and acting. Realism, I suppose, mm. uh, is what I'm talking about. And I don't mean realism in the narrow sense of keeping it real, because I think people are quite confused <clears throat> about the difference between reality and realism they're very different things yeah i mean realism is a selection of details heightened and put together in such a way as to give you the illusion that you're watching reality but reality we all know can be quite boring <laughs> you know and um in chekhov's world of course he's, he's very gifted at, at, at giving you an illusion of reality but it's a very heightened selection of details which come together to create that so i'm probably rambling a, a bit here but i um find that uh, also in with actors it's very easy as an actor to pick up somebody else's rhythm and tempo before you know where you are you're both you've both fallen into the each other's tempo 
and um, you know some characters have a very quick light soft tempo and some have a which is very different to one's own and some have a tempo which is slower and more uh, more plodding perhaps you know and uh, I think um, you have to kind of figure that out for yourself as, as, as an actor when you're tackling or any character really, but certainly in Chekhov, because it's very easy for it to become that kind of, uh, um, you can fall into a, a very introspective or a plodding way of doing it. And it's a problem with a writer, I think, where so much is not on the page. Unlike say Shakespeare and Shaw, where you've got to act on the line and through the line, Chekhov is very different. Wow. And uh, unless you're very clear about your inner life and your, your uh, inner, inner uh, obstacles and so on, you, you, you can just end up playing the straight lines and they're not very interesting. Yeah. Anyway, they're all in translation, aren't they? Yeah. yeah. I mean, Conor McPherson's yeah. worked from presumably a work, I don't know if he has, but maybe you can correct me on that, but a work from a Russian translation, word for word, Russian to English, and then he's made an adaptation of that, unless he speaks Russian, I don't know, but um, most of us English folks, we are dealing with the play several removes, you know, so we, how far we are from the source <laughs> is going to be determined by the nature of the of the adaptation and the translation that's being used. Yeah, yeah, that's it's so interesting. Um, yeah, well, this is this has been a really insightful conversation. You know, this has been really really good to actually touch on the the rhythm and like the process and everything else, and also the history as well. So mm. it's so interesting. Um, I think just just before we come to a close here today, um, just a couple of um, I'd say quick fire questions, but I'm sure you can go to as much detail as you please. Um, so this is sort of number one, really. So I'd say similar to other playwrights and how they comment on social political events. In your opinion, what distinguishes Chekhov from, from the rest of them? What gives him that unique edge when talking about, when writing a play within a specific political landscape? I'm not saying he's talking about a political event as such, but what, what do you think separates him from the rest, if that makes sense? Um, well, uh, at the risk of repeating myself, I, for, forgive me, but I, I, no, the thing that comes to me in mind is he doesn't really have an agenda. Yeah, you know, yeah. he's not he's not off the middle classes like Ibsen is, for example. Mm. Uh, you know, he's not uh, avowing some huge society change, like possibly maybe, you know, Shaw might be or, or Gorky. You know, um, he he doesn't seem to have a, a of a direct or overt agenda, unless it's an inner one. I think finally he just says, you know, people don't change very much. <laughs> if you can salvage some beauty along the way, it's better than nothing. You know, you've got to make the effort though to mm. make your life better. It's an individual thing. Mm. Fascinating. Yeah. And uh, and then just to finish, um, I suppose. We're taking a very hypothetical view with this last question, really. But uh, say, if if Chekhov was alive today, and he saw the just I don't know, I remember we talked about it at the top of the uh, show today was the fact that he saw everyone being forcefully locked in, everyone being pushed together, and and just you know we couldn't go anywhere, we couldn't go outside, and in these modern times compared to um, at the time he was writing in the late 18, 1890s. Um, do you think that this would be, I mean, it's a very Jacobian state if you think about it right now, 
But um, you know, how would you think he would turn this, you know, with this various media and everything, all this tragedy that seems to be around us right now? How do you think he would translate all this into a into comedy, into a tragic comedy? Find the humor in such a some people would say a tragic time that we're living through at the moment. Well, <laughs> this is going to sound a bit like the plot of Uncle Vanya, really, but I, I think he, I think, you know, because I've heard people have been forced to kind of compelled to 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 share uh, accommodation or not with people they wouldn't have been used to sharing with. And I think he'd have found the great humour in people's enforced uh, isolation and also enforced sharing within it in unfamiliar surroundings, you know, um, uh, not unlike Uncle Vanya, really, you know. I don't know whether, uh, again, it's just hard to say, isn't it, really? I don't think he's, uh, he's going to propose some revolutionary change, but I think he would yeah. have a great fun in orchestrating all the chaos and the mess that comes yeah. from uh, an enforced period of living either alone or with people that you don't want to live with. Yeah, you know, he would he would look at the the Zoom chats. Or like the, oh yeah, 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 that would be in it as well. And there'll be a lot of comedy with cameras turned on or off, or <laughs> connections failing, and you know, and people coming back and trying to sort of rewrite what they'd written and that kind of thing. Yeah, there would I think there would be a lot of scope for that. <laughs> and then just people like trying to find it. I've if you've got a big family and then you've got you know like young kids or anything, just just I could just see a total kind of technological madness on, yes, on the yes. stage you know I wouldn't be surprised if he just you know got a theatre and that it was just a um, a screen and with all yeah. these very soon boxes and people just like <laughs> freezing, yeah. freezing in one corner and then disappearing in the yeah. other just like yeah. that um, that would be the modern Jacobian experience wouldn't it I suppose yeah it's, it sort of reminds me a bit of um staged that uh show that came out on the BBC with David Tennant and uh, oh yes Michael Sheen you know that sort of states where we're all trying to communicate but yet the outside world is locking us in from a uh, socially and uh, environmental view as well which i think you know he's, he's very much alive check off you know yeah his, he is his ideas he is. are are still are still with us and i think that's what makes him one of the great very much i mean that thing about the environment sorry very briefly but importantly I yeah, think, yeah i mean that's one of those celebrated moments in Uncle Vanya is where Astrov talks about his um, love for the for the environment. Yeah. When he he takes Uncle Vanya on and says, "Look, why do you burn wood? Burn peat in your stoves. You know why should I do that?" Vanya says, and then he has this long speech about about you know the importance of living close to the environment and keeping it in your heart and knowing that actually watching a planting a tree and watching it grow yes. is 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 so important and significant and we should do all in our power to preserve that life that's couldn't be more topical i could hear david attenborough saying something like that you know <laughs> i mean it will be it will be almost a banner speech for green for greenpeace or any of the one of the many environmental or groups and organizations that are around so as you say oliver he is extremely modern yeah yeah fantastic it's yeah i think that's why he will stand the test of time like mm. with, uh, like with shakespeare with ibsen with pinter yep. with beckett yep. he's Definitely. up there with the greats and uh, mm. long may his reputation and his work be celebrated so, yeah i agree cool. so agree. just before i let you guys say something i'm gonna okay. i'm gonna uh, stop the recording now so i can like, say goodbye to you Probably okay. make sure no technical issues or anything. Sure. But uh, for our listeners and viewers today, thank you so much for watching. Thank you for tuning in. 
Uh, please subscribe to my channel on YouTube, Oliver Gower, or subscribe to the Uncensored Critic. You'll find it on, on Spotify, on Apple, whichever platform you're listening to right now. Give me a follow. That would be amazing. And uh, uh, Simon, you're doing more work with, um, in fact, I should say I discovered you through um, Charlie at Running It Shouting. Oh, yes, 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 and, yes. And so Simon runs a good uh, session there on Uncle Vanya and, of course, other Chekhov as well you've got many others coming up with oh uh, well i i mean i am always tinkering around with that play uncle vanya in particular and uh yeah i may well resume my sessions uh, i'm taking a little recess right now with uncle with uncle vanya on run shouting but i'd like to do more and uh possibly other plays too i mean i've been looking again at the cherry orchard recently and uh mm. that's something of a high watermark i think in, yeah. in dramatic writing isn't it i'm told um i think it was david hare was talking about it so i i you know, every writer hopes to write a play as good as the cherry orchard. You know, that's what keeps me writing. He said somewhere, you know, <laughs> write a play. And you so, uh, yeah, I mean, um, there's so much to investigate. So many plays, so little time. But uh, I hope to do more. Rather than shouting, and um, yeah, I think there's a, a production coming up soon. Actually, of Uncle Vanya at the Chiswick Playhouse that's being mooted. Um, so we'll see. You know, as you say, his his name and reputation are alive and well. You know, so yeah, I yeah. might continue. Uh, Simon, thank you so, so much for this. This has been extremely informative and I've learned so much. I hope, despite my uh, facts being a little off uh, at some point. <laughs> no worries. No, uh, it's no worries. been, I hope I've made sense. And, uh, Absolutely. and uh, yeah, this is, I've thoroughly enjoyed it. So thank you so Me much. Too. Thanks so much. Thank Thanks, you. Oliver. Take care. Okay, bye-bye.